Hello, dearest patron. We're back here. You're about to hear the last part of George's interview with Carlo, and it will be followed, of course, by the after party. So essentially, yeah. how to revitalize intermediary bodies, I would say, quickly speaking, democratize them. Hmm. Don't adopt top-down hierarchical organizational models, but to the extent that you adopt more open, democratic, bottom-up models of organization, these intermediary bodies can be revitalized, it seems to me. Okay. I mean, I guess that's essentially a, a, a practical wager. I mean, hopefully there will be some some opportunities to test this. I think it's, you know, it's something which even even in the political parties that do exist has been in some cases discussed how do you democratize the party as it exists you know but i think there are obviously massive barriers to that in in every um sort of situation that i can i can think of um but yeah i guess we 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 can if i can add something to that yeah, yeah. i agree that parties have attempted to democratize but the example of new labor shows that the attempt to democratize the parties has often been techno populist itself it has all yeah. been about disintermediation so for instance new labor comes along and tries to diminish the role of trade unions within the party I, and and to create a party of individuals that is not the internal party democracy for me that is internal party techno populism as we talk in our yeah. so you you need to adopt mediated forms of democracy within the intermediary bodies mediation has this kind of fractal structure uh, that that in order to actually empower uh, the, the party base. Otherwise, if you create these techno-populist authoritarian models of intra-party democracy, you end up that with new labor, which is not yeah. a form of democratization of the labor party. It's a, I guess it's kind of a counterintuitive or, or a somewhat paradoxical or difficult sell, basically saying that the fact that, you know, it's easy to sell disintermediation. It's like, do you want your voice directly to be heard? Then log onto this yeah. platform and tell tell the leader, you know, you don't need to go through any of the intermediary sure. steps just go straight to the straight to the boss and and you know tell him or her what, what you think but yeah i mean we could we could talk about this specific um kind of aspect of of what what is to be done for for a while but i wanted to just push you on a couple of other kind of more more specific points um particularly or one of them about merkel um do you think so other than Silvio Berlusconi, obviously, um, one of the defining figures of, of European politics. Um, do you think that she's a techno-populist? I mean, what, or in what ways might you argue that she is or was? I must confess that my expertise of German politics, in large part because I speak very little German, is not great. So I did, so we did not talk about Germany in our book. Uh, what we did was develop a concept in the hope that others who know more about different contexts can apply our concept to them if they think it works. It just so happens that, as, 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 I, as we mentioned, so I'm, it is very flattering that uh, Wolfgang Strick in his review of our book for the London Review of Books decided that this concept seemed to him to apply to Merkel. Uh, and that he, that's what he did. This is, as an, as an author, I think no better compliment is possible than to take your idea and apply it somewhere else where you didn't think about or didn't know how to apply it. And that's what he said, that, 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 that yes, that techno-populism is a framework that can help understand what 
Merkel did to the Christian Democratic Party in Germany, and how this emerged from an underlying crisis of the Christian Democratic Party. So, yeah. so in terms of our typology, maybe it's closer to New Labour, bizarrely. Uh, one, but 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 in so doing, I think what's interesting about Strick's review is he also changes our concept. And that's that's dialectics, right? It, he uses it to apply it to a case, and then the case changes yeah. it because for him, populism in Merkel doesn't happen at the domestic level. Her populism is European populism, the construction of this Europe. She never claimed to represent a German people. So she always claimed to have this expertise and capacity of, you know, r- rationally solving Pro- problems. Yeah, as a pro- pro- problem solver. It's the same yeah, as Macron, totally, totally. but but taken but to European level. Populism, she never claimed to embody the German people. In Germany, that's way more dodgy. She, where where Strick finds her populism is in a European level kind of populism, this kind of projected idea of a populist in of a people in the making of Germany as the leader of a European people, uh, of which that is the people she claimed to represent, a people which is even more fictional than the German people, which is the European people. But fictional doesn't necessarily mean bad. It just means that it was a political projection. That she was making. So she was appealing for him to both populist and technocratic traits in complex ways that stem from a crisis of the German Christian Democratic Party. So, again, not speaking as an expert of German politics, I learned that our case can be applied and our, our concept can be applied, apparently, uh, with modifications to a different context as well. Yeah, I mean, I think that's so interesting, the idea that, I mean, because it seems to me Merkel clearly has some some technocratic leanings, like non-ideological, just solve the problems as they come along and do, you know, apply that kind of competence. But the idea that the the people that are being represented, it's not, I mean, is this therefore the pinnacle of techno-populism or actually not, maybe not the pinnacle that you could have instead of the national people being represented, the European, yeah. I guess my... I guess it's so just maybe one one final question and I'll try and put this in a in a comprehensible way but I mean I guess like what what do you think is the relationship of techno populism to the politics of the EU or to the the or maybe to the just a, a, a kind of a global kind of progressive international project so this idea like if it's good to represent the people um, then it must be better to represent or maybe not represent the people at the European level or the world level. Like, is this, is this the future for techno populism? Like why not just combine expertise with a claim to represent the humanity as a whole? Yeah. I think, again, this would represent a extension and therefore maybe also transformation of the concept, which for us refers to a logic of electoral competition. So because there are no international elections, it's it's, it's difficult, but, but there, I think there's many grounds for doing such an extension. At the European level, which is the one we see where there are so-called European elections, even though they are based on nationally, it's complicated. I So inside the European parliament, I think we see this a lot, a lot. We have, there we have the responsible parties in the grand coalition and yep. the populist parties. Uh, uh, so the left-right co- competition has com- been completely displaced by a, the responsibles versus the populists, the technocrats versus the populists. So inside there, and and uh, you see this logic of of electoral competition very much. The, the, the terms of the discussion within the European Parliament are very much not left versus right, but 
responsibles or technocrats versus populists. And of course, the process of European integration itself has been very much uh, framed as a technical necessity. Absolutely. Uh, 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 from uh, from Monet onwards, uh, he said that, that was the whole logic of functionalist integration. It's necessary. One step will necessitate the other one, whether people want it or not. But then they would, starting in the early 2000s, what they have sought is retroactive populist justification for it so in the form of referenda. Uh, and they have been surprised by the fact that people may or may not actually want what is presented to them as necessary. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. But, but so this framework uh, of technical necessities, which may or may not have popular approval, uh, it seems to me very much at the core of, of the process of European integration, yeah. which... I say this as somebody who would be for a European integration, but in, in the way in which Spinelli thought about it, as a political project of bottom-up democratic coming together. This is not the kind of European integration we got. That was a political kind, of, not a techno-populist one. It was clearly ideological. It was based on what are the grounds for generalizing socialism and social democracy in Europe. So does European integration have to be techno-populist? My answer, no. Has it been organized very much so uh, around the, the techno-populist logic? My answer is yes. Okay, brilliant. Well, uh, any, any, final, any final thoughts? I mean, we, we covered a, a, lot of, a lot of ground there. Um, and I think listeners will be, uh, there's a lot in there to get their, their uh, teeth into. But yeah, anything that we didn't, that we didn't no, cover that you wanted to, say to add? Thank you. And it's a real pleasure to be here. I'm a great admirer of your podcast and uh, it's a pleasure to be able to contribute it too. Thank you very much. Well, thanks so much, Carlo. All right, that was, I think, a fascinating interview and um, I learned some things because I haven't yet read the book. Uh, George, tell us a little bit what your take on it was. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I really enjoyed speaking to Carlo. <laughs> Thank, thanks again to Carlo uh, for your time. And yeah, I mean, I guess we, we covered some of the, the main topics of the, um, of the book. And there were a few things that I particularly wanted to discuss with you guys. But before we move on to those, what did you, what did you guys make of it? What's your, what's your response to the uh, discussion that I had with Carlo? Carlo is always great value. Um, so, and, you know, he's very um, kind of voluble and charismatic um, guest. So it was great to listen to. And, you know, the basic, um, the basic logic of the thesis sound, sounds to me to be very persuasive, though I have some, I have some kind of disagreements, but uh, we can get into that. Yeah. Um, likewise, I think also, yeah, I mean, he's very, like, very good at clearly laying out the, the main thesis. I do find it persuasive. I do have some questions, um, especially which I think we'll come to discuss on the question of the toxicity of politics and how techno populism does or doesn't account for that. Um, I think it's compelling, but I'm not sure fully, it fully does. But anyway, um, George, you said you wanted to raise some issues. So why don't you go ahead? Yeah. So, I mean, I guess the first one is around the central thesis. So this idea that you have the replacement of the political ideological logic of politics with the techno populist one i think this is you know one of the central theses 
of the whole book. And I guess the question is whether this is like, how does this happen? I mean, is, is the account, um, you know, is Carlo's account plausible? Like what, what is the mechanism through which you see this, the replacement of this older with this newer logic? Yeah. So I have to, I mean, I think this is the most persuasive part of the thesis. So if the question is kind of slightly rephrase George's question. So what kind of politics corresponds to a destructured society? So the society that was inherited from the most of the 20th century that was disassembled over the course from the 1970s to the end of the 20th century, what kind of politics can corresponds to that destructuration? And the idea that it forces any political, when you have this destructured society without all of these intermediating linking institutions that aggregate political will in this kind of fractal way through all sorts of social intermediary, kind of intermediary social and political institutions, then that political organizations necessarily have to stand for the whole because they are not the apex or the connecting element of these other intermediary forms of social life. And so if techno-populism describes the politics of this destructured society, more individuated, atomized, without social aggregation, then that basic thesis and that it forces these parts to stand for a whole directly without any of the links that would otherwise kind of cushion them and embed them. I think that is that core idea and trying to describe the politics that flows from that structure that I find compelling and convincing. Yeah, and I, I mean, I think this is potentially, it sounds like a, geek, a geeky sort of point, but the etymology of party is really, it's actually really important because it means that it's, a you know, you think of a party, a political party as this organization, which does politics, right? And it belongs to the formal political sphere, or maybe, you know, you have a more traditional understanding, you think it belongs to civil society and intermediate, but it, I think more fundamentally than that, it, it is a part of society, right? Not that it it's just in sense of being a constituent part, but it's a division of the people. It's a section of society with its own particular interests, which it seeks to then represent. And that's something that we, I think, have completely lost a sense of today. So I think that's kind of, that's important. And that ties into what Phil was just saying. Yeah, I guess the, the question is then raised, like, what is the, um, what is the older logic? I mean, is, 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 because one thing that like hearing you both talk about this made me think is that techno-populism is one of the, of the sorts of politics of the whole as against the politics of the parts, which is like, you know, politics of parties, but like, it doesn't have to, it's not necessarily the only politics of the whole you could have and you know we could see different ways of trying to represent yeah. the whole which aren't populist which aren't technocratic which are i don't know totalitarian for example yeah something. i can't can't really think of a plausible one off the top of my head but they you know they're, they're possible and we might well see them but yeah what's this what is this older logic of, of politics and is there anything more to say on 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 that like what what was replaced by techno populism well, I mean, I think we know that. I mean, it's, it's you know, almost it becomes a bit caricatured, but, you know, the kind of post-war model of uh, mostly kind of duopolistic competition between between the center right and the center left, one which represented the working class, the other rep which represent, it, you know, the religious, which, um, you know, I think there's there's an important point here. And it's something, a point that we make in the, in, in the end of the end of history as well, which is that the left is much more, um, explicit about representing a part of society in terms of rep traditionally, I mean, representing the working class, 
right? Um, in a way that the right has always sought to be more national, right? And, and be a bit more catch-all um, because it couldn't be explicitly the party of the middle class and the upper class, right? So I think there's always a, a kind of, they're, they're not, the left and right aren't uh, mirror images of each other in the sense that, you know, the left represents those at the bottom and the right represents those at the top. The left speaks explicitly for those on the bottom and the right speaks in some other division, whether it's the Christians, you know, in the, in the example that Carlo gave of Christian democracy, or indeed of trying to speak in, in terms of being a national party for the nation and try to exclude those who are leftists, who are, um, you know, dividing society and um, are ripping up tradition and whatever, right? So I think See, I think is... it's important to, to recognize that that it's not the left right thing is traditionally, at least in the 20th century, mm. it's not so neat as as a kind of mirror image of one another. So I would agree with some of that and disagree with some of it. I mean, I think this is the weakness of the thesis is that it seems to me it's based on a kind of, it's premised on being counterposed to an idealized post-war period across the 50s to the early 70s, where mm -hmm. you had heavily, you know, a very dense trade or dense tr trade union, high levels of trade union density, high levels of social participation, large mass parties. And it's based on the way in which that society, that post-war society disintegrated, was destructured over time. But it's an ideal, you know, it's a very idealized image, an ideal typical image with some of the details kind of shaved out and even an idealized image. So it's also worth remembering, I mean, that era, right, the era of kind of um, tremendous kind of post-war growth was also itself characterized as a post-ideological era as our own era is, mm -hmm. you know, so I mean, it wasn't the idea that it corresponds to robust political competition between different groups that accepted each other's legitimacy doesn't, you know, that doesn't seem to me to be so, mm. so um, compelling as a model against which to counterpose our current on the claim, you know, that our current era is more virulently hostile. Um, again, you know, the compared to what? To mean compared to say the twenties and the thirties, the interwar period of Western European political history, where you had very sharply polarized friend enemy distinctions, and even you know that was the era in which Carl Schmitt developed the the theory. But at the same time, you had mass parties and you had mass participation in public life and civic life. So the I think some of the the ways in which they construct some of the claims are based on sharp distinctions with the past that you really have to you really have to kind of give a freeze frame view of the past in order to convincingly make the claim of these historic distinctions and i think that's a weaker part of the of the thesis mm, yeah mm. It, it still I mean, takes the, the the kind of the second half of the 20th century as the norm which is something that we've discussed before about the problem in that and it's something that we try to avoid in the end of the end of history in not treating politics um which you know is then followed by post-politics I mean, and anti-politics yeah. as the the, so, the only form of politics or i mean think of think of common so when you know when carlo says that you know so there's a refusal to accept the your competitor is legitimate and that is part of a problem today i mean you know that was i mean that was fairly common in the post-war period too communist part there was a cordon sanitaire kind of constructed against communist parties um the part of the whole point of italian politics indeed was to avoid any kind of possible governing coalition with the communists they were excluded in post-war french politics as well so 
you know, this idea that it was all the legitimacy of the I mean, the, the, the communists did, did eventually come in, in in, I think, the, the late yes, 70s. Yes, thank you, Alex. Yes, they did. So. But my point is they were excluded for a long time. It was part yeah. of politics to exclude communist no, and, parties. And, and, and if you go beyond Western Europe, the picture looks pretty different. I mean, even the US doesn't entirely fit this picture. And beyond, you know, Western Europe, uh, even where you had, you know, formerly democratic governments, the kind of often violent exclusion of the other uh, yeah, of, so I'm of, saying of, 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 of political opponents was very yeah, obvious. I'm not sure. Not so I think, I mean, the so I mean, I think they're happy. I think they restrict their claims to the liberal to advanced capitalist societies, liberal democratic countries. But even if you look there, like I say, the pattern doesn't quite fit. Right? You have the legitimacy of certain mass political organizations denied, and so the idea that the denial of your competitor, the legitimacy of your competitor, is something that's restricted to our era in say, you know, Trump versus the Democrats or Brexit versus Remain, the bitterness of recent political events that we're familiar with, you know, that bitterness and the refusal to acknowledge the legitimacy of, of different claimants, it's something which is also familiar to the past. So I think the picture, the initial picture they present is convincing, but the detail of some of the claims they make is, of the argument is forced in parts. Well, I think there's <clears throat> there's definitely something about any model of politics which has its like implied comparator in like I think any like what is the time where things were the opposite to, to where they were today. But anyway, to move on, I mean, I'm, you know, this is a central thesis of the book, so it's good that we've kind of given some some time to discussing that. But another thing I did want to talk about was, I guess, the the, the figures or the personnel who like people politics in the kind of techno populist era so they i think you know this is quite an, an interesting part of the of the book and hopefully of the discussion as well like the figures of the citizen expert the pollster the people's problem solver or europe's problem solver like these are the kind of the characteristic like political actors almost that you you would see in a techno populist age i guess my my question for the two of you is whether you thought this this was an insightful part of of the discussion or you know what what are these again what are the kind of older figures or actors who these would be um counterposed to yeah i think we it's so sort of taken for granted because it's part of the landscape that we know and even if you don't pay much attention to politics you're still aware of them that it's almost hard to perceive them or hard to perceive that point as like an original point you're like yeah well of course there's pollsters and whatever right it's it's part of the furniture um, I guess we can contrast them to something like, oh, the party man, right? The party cadre of, you know, whether, whether it's a Christian Democrat or a communist or whoever, um, who would have been identifiable figures in mid-century. And today they're, you know, just basically non-existent. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's persuasive again. And again, like Alex says, it's almost difficult to imagine who kind of the local party people might be, that they would be kind of... Uh, an accepted part of neighborhood, community, civic life in a way that's quite alien to us. Whereas, you know, now politicians and people who are kind of politically affiliated are just hacks, basically the kind of people that you probably don't know and you probably don't want to know. Unless, of course, you want to spend your time going to Corbynista pub gatherings and that kind of thing, you know, maybe some yeah. people do. I mean, people who talk about politics on podcasts are very, very different and superior to any of these sorts of people. But it also that, did that make goes, that goes without saying. Yeah, I mean, and people who listen to those podcasts are even more superior again. Mm. But it just made me think about the figure of the, you know, of the advisor and the 
like this per this person is a bit more on the kind of i guess uh on the border because like the thing about the pollster is that they have like where does their expertise come from it comes from knowing like from knowing the the people and the best pollsters have that combination of art and science right that they can like they can know they can know which polls to believe and which polls not to believe but the, the way that they do this is by knowing by being able to divinate more accurately what the people really really want and that's mm. where their expertise comes from but the advisor is the one who kind of brings in it's like the hero in this techno popular story in the kind of the thick of it because they're the ones who actually bring in some idea of like this is party discipline or this is um these are the interests these are the constituencies that we actually have to 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 represent rather than this is the people as a whole oh, i don't well, know am i, I, I might... just reading too much into that uh, no i think that's right but i i, I think maybe one way to shed light on it and this just occurred to me is to take a figure who exists in 1960 and exists in 2020 um you know that it's the same figure and look how they've changed rather than contrast different um, characters, right? So, for example, you're talking the, about Bernie Sanders here. <laughs> no, I'm talking about, for example, like a newspaper columnist, right? Um, what is the newspaper columnist columnist like in the age of uh, well, post-war politics, and what is the newspaper columnist like in the po- in the techno-populist age? And I think that might be an interesting columnist. Kind of... Columnist, Alex. Columnist. What am I saying? Columnist. Yeah, that's how you say it. Columnist. Well, it's Salmon too, by the way, and Almond. Um, it's important to pronounce all the letters. Anyway, enunciate, Phil, please. Um, but I, I think the newspaper columnist in the 1960, for example, I guess might have been associated with a political party but and may have been close to the leadership. But I feel like they were more organically embedded in, a, in an ideology and, then, and therefore perhaps more able to criticize it. I'm really thinking out loud, so jump in if you, if you think I'm, I'm talking nonsense. Whereas today, I guess the the Nonsense. columnist doesn't have any, you know, obvious political allegiance. They might be associated with the Democrats or with the Labour Party or with the Conservatives or whoever. Um, but they, it just, it all seems like a bit unmoored. I don't know. I'm trying to, I'm trying to, like, I'm reaching for something to, in a way to try I'm to not characterize sure. I mean, how they changes. I, it seems to me it's very, it's very hard. I mean, I think you know. It's hard to know, to be fair. I think unless you have kind of familiarity with the media organs, you know, you'd have to look back at the 60s and 70s or have lived through that and have a kind of a a concrete sense of how that might have changed over the last 50, 60 years or so. Um, So I couldn't say, except I think I could only speak about my own period with any familiarity. And I think in that period, it's, you know, it's striking how similar politically, ideologically, um, so many commentators are, and I mean, it's a familiar gripe, but it doesn't make mm-hmm. it any less true, at least in, you know, it seems to me in, um, in Britain, um, perhaps to a less, lesser degree in America and maybe in France, kind of the countries that I'm kind of, uh, most familiar with, um, politically speaking in Western, in the Western world, at least, but yeah, I mean, I don't, I'm not sure that the contrast can be drawn again, so kind of sharply. I guess, I guess um, what, yeah, whether it whether it can or not, the, if if the thesis is is correct that you have a techno populist logic, then it would it would um, change at least the content or the the way that columnists or columnists or however you pronounce it, those people writing writing 
things, uh, do, writing words for money, um, how they're trying to pitch what they're doing. Because, I mean, their audience yeah. is, is yeah. then everyone all the time, not just a, a, a smaller group of people. But any, anyhow, just kind of um, the, third, the third thing I, I wanted to, to pick up or draw out of, of the conversation that I had with, with Carlo um, was something you alluded to already in the introduction, Alex, which is this, these ideas of like the increasingly toxic nature of politics and the, this idea that it's been desubstantialized. So yeah, maybe th- this has been referred to as hyperpolitics by, by some, um, but yeah, what, what are we actually talking about here? What are the, what do these terms mean and, and are they useful? Yeah, I actually was, um, I just tweeted a thread earlier today, like trying to pull two things together. And I don't know if I did a, a good job of it, but um, you basically have, well, you know, listeners will have heard the interviews. So I don't need to repeat what Carlos says, but the need to speak for everyone, right. Rather than to speak for your party or for a section of society means that, you know, the, the, those who oppose are, are, um, are, are because politics becomes thereby moralized rather than about interests, they become, you know, reprehensible, moral, morally to be excluded, you know, um, unacceptable. Um, and I think that's, you know, that that's fine as far as it goes. I wonder how that relates then to, you know, what we've termed as kind of new, new culture wars, right? Um, and the, my idea was that, you know, effectively in the, especially the nineties and two thousands, you had government through consensus, right? So you have technocrats appealing to consensus always. And there were populist elements, you know, as Carlo alluded to, you know, Tony Blair was also in some ways a populist at the same time, he was very obviously technocratic. Um, but at some point, the opposition between techno- technocracy and populism fuses really into one, right? Um, and that then that techno-populist logic becomes the sort of general form of politics. Um, and what you have now is these kind of hysterical culture wars, right? But we're, nothing is really political in them, right? And I don't think we can say that the culture wars are a form of politics. They seem politicized, but they um, don't really allow for politics to break forth. So my point that I'm trying to make is that uh, now you don't have government through consensus. You have, in some ways, consensus through dissensus, right? So the, the the actual fomenting and cultivation and continuation of these culture wars is a way that elites maintain power. Um, I don't mean that in a conspiratorial yeah. sense, but the, the perpetuation of that logic keeps anything from actually changing because it stops politics from emerging. It's a good thread, and I think it's a good complement to the discussion here. Um, and I'd say, I mean, again, you know, like I mentioned before, I mean, we have earlier periods where you have even more kind of bitterly polarized, violent um, opposition um, and denial of legitimacy to other political actors and other political groups. But at the same time, you have kind of mass political parties, mass political organizations. And it's not clear quite how that it's a very different era and it doesn't suffer from desubstantialization and destructuration in Chris and Carlo's terms. But nonetheless, you have, um, you know, you have a kind of intensity of violent opposition which isn't the kind of opposition and bitterness that we have today. Um, and trying to kind of uh, characterize what make what is different about those two periods. I'm not sure how far, you know, I'm not sure how far the techno-populist thesis can go in doing that. Yeah, I think it's yeah. a ground for it, but maybe we need a kind of different, you know, concept to really understand what what's going on there. 
I mean, I think we have some disagreements as well about about culture wars and whether they're political or not. I mean, I I don't think it's like techno populism doesn't mean, as on my understanding at least, that there's no material politics. I mean, the culture wars can still be can still be material and political. I think um, even under its, yeah, I, I, I agree. I agree. I, I mean, I think they're they're culture wars in form, but um, they're in, but they in content they are often political. Yeah, but they don't break out of the form of the culture war. Yeah, I mean, I mean, and this, you know, this could well be explained by the fact that the need to counterpose one part of society with another isn't isn't there in political presentations as as it uh, was previously. Instead, you are always invoking and appealing to everybody. <clears throat> so you're trying to find a universally correct or incorrect, your opponent being incorrect, um, cultural position. Um, and so you're kind of unmoored from your social bases of your of your constituents. Um, and so that could explain how you have this, like this competition, which is seemingly <laughs> about everything. But in reality, you know, when you peel away the ideology, it's about a cer- certain group or groups. Um, yeah, the and because it's a bit also the group. used to stand for the whole in the past as well. Right. So, I mean, I don't accept what, you know, that that Alex said, the nation versus the class as being kind of the. Um, you know, as being the kind of marker of previous political periods. I mean, the whole point, if you take classical kind of Marxist claims, the whole point was that the working class was the universal class in in very pointed contrast to the claims of, um, you know, postmodernist style of politics and indeed identity politics. The idea of universalism is evacuated. Um, but but, but, even that, on but a that Marxism was basis, always the idea was the working class was the democratic majority, uh, or that the working class, in alliance with other classes like the peasantry and other kind of poor and marginalized groups, would lead society. Um, so it doesn't seem you know the parts did used to stand for the whole, but that they stood for the whole through these mediating links, um, and it's the mediations that are that are gone. And so it's this is what delegitimizes or makes impossible the claim to stand for a part to stand for the whole. Whereas in the past it was possible, or at least it was politically more viable and legitimate for a part to claim to stand for the whole in a way that yeah. it isn't anymore. But the the part like calling the proletariat the universal class, that's not really a pitch to capitalists, is it? It's not like saying like you should accept this class as as you know. No, but populists don't well. appeal to the elites either, right? But they yeah. do claim to stand for the whole. Yeah. Technocrats claim to stand for the whole. You know, in Chris and Carlo's telling, technocrats claim to stand for the whole. Um, they're a part that claims to stand for the whole. They know the, be- the best how to run things, and so therefore they should be in charge. Yeah, I so, mean, I, I think that's right. There's always an attempt to speak for the whole. And actually, it's it's the exception where there's a deliberate sort of particularism, whether it's indeed. an ethnic particularism or even sometimes, um, you know, in like highly fragmented political systems, you have a party which is like, we just stand for the liberal middle class and we gain our 10% of the electorate at every election. And that's what we do. Like, and there's upfront about that. You don't have that so and much even, in, in Anglophone I mean, countries, but you have it in- Even identity, even identity politics. I mean, if you take this, you know, the claim, of the most kind of fractious and divisive identity politics, even there, there's the claim of justice, right? Retro of the need for um, for restitution, for the righting of historic wrongs. So even there, there is a tacit kind of buried universal appeal. So this idea that you know parts don't stand for holes, and that this is only characterizes our period 
that would be to misconstrue. I think that would be to force the case and to misconstrue it. It's rather it, as to how the part claims to stand for the yeah, whole. I that's think that's different. it. And it isn't today the fact that you don't have anyone who you don't have an acknowledgement that it is a part because it's not no one roots it in a particular interest. Right. I mean, particular in the sense yes, that it's I just not all right. of society. So today you have it's just a jump to the whole immediately without saying, no, we represent the working class, which whose interests actually are the interests of society as a whole, or we, you know, um, or we, we represent the, the kind of intelligent middle class whose interests, because they're smarter, are, represent all the whole. I think it's an immediate sense of like, no, this, this is the best everyone. taken for granted ideas which, represent, which are good for everyone. And if you don't agree with that, then you're a reprobate, you're a degenerate, you're uh, yeah. horrible. Yeah, previously it was the politics of the parts of the whole, and now it's the politics of the whole of the whole. Something to put it like in that. very i think that is actually right it's not very it's not very clarifying um but yeah on, but i mean on, the move on... from the move from the particular to the universal is something that which is like it's pretty essential to politics and you don't have a move from the particular paradoxically as we've discussed so much on this podcast you know you don't have universalism today and yet everything pretends to be universal that's universally true across the world we don't have universalism today <sighs> Anyway, um, I think there is one thing, though, because uh, when we had Anton Yeager on um, a little a couple of months ago, we talked about what he what he, he wrote an article on uh, hyper politics, which is the sense of um, politicization of the everyday down from the kind of most intimate basic level up to the biggest possible stuff like climate change and that there's no real mediation. There's no there's no lacks the vehicles through which to transmit politics. Um, but I'm not entirely satisfied with the term hyperpolitics. I don't know if, if you guys are, but I think it is a like a challenge, probably a challenge to us to kind of identify what is going on at the moment. Because I new culture war, you know, kind of grasps at some of the logic of it that it's about, you know, this type of person and shared values, and that if you're not this type of person, then you're a bad person, right? And that that and and because that's completely unmoored from any determinate interest in society, that it can just be like, well, everyone should be this type of person. Everyone should be like a good liberal, and if you're not, you're bad. Or everyone should be like a good, authentic, uh, you know, um, heartland person, and if you're not, you're a degenerate, uh, you know, liberal metropolitan, and um. So, so it kind of cap the term cultural kind of captures some of that logic, but I think I'm not entirely satisfied with the term either. So, I I'm, I'm interested if we can think of what you know better term for this for what's going on today is. Yeah, I think culture war is is really unsatisfying and I think doesn't work. But but there is clearly there is clearly a you know a shift and from the political ideological logic of politics to to a newer logic which is more totalizing and no but but, but hang on but i think there's but it's not just that it's that there's a, there's a move from the political ideological to the post-political right to the age of consensus and whatever and then that falls apart at the end of the end of history and so that's where we're at now and i'm trying to try to find the kind of term or concept to capture what has happened especially in the past you know for sort of four or five years where politics i think techno so hysterical techno populism I think techno-populism is, in terms of the new, the subtitle of the book, The New Logic of Democratic Politics, I mean, I think that is an accurate account 
of the basic dividing line and the fact that it's overlaid. It doesn't quite obliterate previous distinctions, but kind of overlays and distorts previous distinctions. I mean, I, you know, I accept that. I think insofar as culture wars come into it, I mean, that seems to me to be a logic of identity. Um, and again, I mean, I suppose it has some parallels as, in as much as it, identity, which is to say sameness, uh, doesn't, it lacks mediation, right? It lacks kind of contradiction. It lacks internal, um, internal difference. To say identity is to say the opposite of something which requires connection or elaboration or, um, you know, kind of um, yeah. refinement. I mean I guess one one thing which you know Chris and Carlo's books not trying to do um, is is explain like how people are mobilized because techno populism this is how you know this is how system actors like parties and you know leaders and so on respond like or, or like how they act by making claims um, to expertise and claims to the people but what is it that gets you know gets people mobilized to to kind of be active in politics well that is something which is cultural and identarian so you could have like a techno populist cultural identarian logic i mean that is what um, happens right i mean if you think like you know question of immigration becomes one of do you love refugees or do you hate migrant or are you a mask wearer or uh, not a mask wearer and it so it always boils down to some essential idea about who you are what type of person you are rather than being really political questions of um, you know, how do we define sovereignty? Who should be what? What should be the border regime, or alternatively, how do we deal with COVID? How do we respond to that? Or how, to what extent do we give up civil liberties in exchange for blah blah blah? That those questions aren't broached because it becomes a standoff between the types of people that you are. Um, and I think mm. that's why I say it's a culture war, but a new culture war because it doesn't exactly follow. It's not just about moral issues in the way that the original kind of American style culture wars of the eighties and nineties were. It's ontological, existential, yeah. as well. Yeah. Um, on that, on that note, anything, anything else to add to what I think is a good, good, good after-party discussion after what I hope was a good pre-after-party discussion. <laughs> yeah, the pre-drinking. Um, I, I, well, I could continue for for a long time, um, but obviously we'll have to come back to this another time. Are you going to um, love our listeners a long time? Huh? Yeah, we could love them a long. I love them. Um, I love them a lot and a long time. Um, that's a so length and girth. Anyway, I'm I'm babbling. Um, let us know what you think about this. Uh, there's obviously a lot to unpick here. It's as I said at the very beginning of the intro. Um, it's a theme that is really central to a lot of what we've been doing for the past five years. Uh, we hope you've enjoyed us, whether you've been with us for a month or five years, um, and we hope you uh, stick around and do tell your friends. Um, we'll be back with more very soon, as usual, new episode every Tuesday. That's it for now. Catch you later. Bye-bye.